Hey, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. If you have them, if you don't, there is a Bible in front of you there uh, in the seat back. You can share with a neighbor. The scripture is on the screen. You can log on to the free Wi-Fi in here on your device. But I would love for all of us to have Daniel chapter 6 in front of us. Uh, while you're flipping there, and if you need to use the table of contents in your Bible, feel free to do that. While you're flipping there, I just want to do a little bit of family business. Um, if you recall, last fall, our beloved worship pastor, Andy Cherry, who actually is uh, scheduled to be back here in the summer leading worship once again. We love when he comes back, so that's a lot of fun. But he resigned from his position here to move back to Charlotte to be close to family. Right at the same time, one of our other worship leaders and vocal directors that we trust and love uh, decided it would be okay for her to go on mat leave because she had a baby. Um, and she did that and did a great job taking care of those, uh, both of her children. Uh, and she is now back on full-time staff. She was part-time before, back on full-time staff and has been given oversight of our uh, morning worship services. We're still working on launching a Sunday night. In fact, we're in the short strokes of kind of hiring someone to do that, to kind of envision that and implement that for the fall. But in the meantime, Jenna Cowens is now on full-time staff at Bayview Glen Church and been given charge over our Sunday morning worship services. And I am absolutely so thrilled. Jenna is so unbelievably talented. Yeah. So unbelievably talented, woman of character. Um, she wants you know, took a long vacation to take care of kids. But other than that, other than that, she's great. And I, I really am personally so glad to have, to have Jenna. And so if you see her around, just tell her uh, congratulations on being on full-time staff and, and that we love her and support her. Uh, the other thing that, that's kind of coming around the bend here is that we uh, have launched a pastoral residency program this last fall. And it's just an opportunity for young people to learn and grow and talk about ministry and then implement uh, specific areas of ministry where God might be calling them. One of those individuals is named Sawyer Bullock. Sawyer is uh, right over here. Sawyer is going to be preaching next week on Daniel chapter 7. So a couple of things about Daniel 7 and a couple of things about Sawyer. When we were planning this series in Daniel, I put all 12 chapters in front of Brandon, who preached on uh, Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a couple weeks ago, and Sawyer, and I said, you guys get first pick. You get the pick of the litter. You take the, the one chapter that you want to preach. You got it, and then I will do all the rest. So Dan, uh, uh, Brandon picked Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Fiery Furnace. Great. Sawyer picked the first chapter in the whole book, where it turns from historical, like chronicle, to apocalyptic prophecy. Next week, he's going to be teaching on Daniel chapter 7, and the Daniel with the beast with the ten horns, and there's one little horn. And it was so funny because he said, I'll take Daniel 7. So I read Daniel 7. I'm like, well, this is not a good idea. And then two weeks later, Sawyer came to me and he said, I believe I've made a grievous error. And I said, yeah, you have, but now we've put it on the thing. It's on the spreadsheet. We can't change it now. But uh, we have been developing that sermon and working together on that. Uh, Sawyer is actually a master's student in philosophy. He's a very accomplished magician, as a matter of fact. So if things get rocky next week, he just might do a cloud of smoke and then he's gone, you know, and... 
it solves that. But Sawyer's a great guy. He's done a lot of global missions work. He's been walking with Jesus for a while. It's going to be outstanding. And so next week, uh, make sure you're here. I will be uh, here as well, but make sure we're here to hear from God's word and to really love and, and support Sawyer. And so that really, uh, that introduction is actually a nice little segue into what we'll be talking about today. Because the first half of Daniel, Daniel's chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, is history and a chronicle of history. And in Daniel chapter 7, it turns, the book of Daniel turns to kind of this apocalyptic prophecy. And so now in Daniel chapter 6, we've come to the end of the first section of Daniel. We're kind of wrapping up the life of Daniel, the life and times of Daniel, with one more situation that he faces in Daniel chapter 6. Next week we'll get into that apocalyptic prophecy, but let's wrap up the first half of the book with Daniel chapter 6, and we'll start here in verse 1. It said, Then it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give accounts, so that the king might suffer no loss. So let's talk real quickly about this guy Darius as a way of review and as a way of like cluing some of us, you know, who, this isn't review, cluing us in on, on, it, on an issue that's happening in the text here. The first thing is this, if you remember when Daniel was a young teen, a man named Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire came in and sacked Jerusalem. And when they did, they took all of the youths that were young, noble, uh, of noble birth, competent, smart, good-looking, actually, and Daniel was one of them, brought them into their kingdom. Since then, Nebuchadnezzar has passed away. Uh, Nabonidus reigned for a while. We had a couple other guys reign for a while. Belshazzar reigned for a while. And at the end of Belshazzar's reign, the Medo-Persian Empire came in and took over Babylon. We spoke about that last week. And Darius is one of the leaders in that Medo-Persian Empire. Interestingly enough, this is a fulfillment of prophecy from Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold in this dream that he had. And the body and arms of silver is the Medo-Persian empire. And so what happens now is that Daniel has tracked through with all these different kings and now a brand new ethnic group is ruling over the empire with Darius at the helm. The problem is that we have no extra biblical documentation that says that Darius was a real guy. I mean, this is the only place in all of the literature of antiquity that mentions this cat Darius. So what I want to do is deal with that issue for you. And in dealing with it, I, I want to show you how there's some, op, 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 uh, there's some options for harmonization and understanding this. But at the same time, listen very, very closely, I also want to teach you how to study the Bible. Because I'm assuming that you want to do this and you like to do this. I'm assuming you can read ahead. Did you know that? Like, just go read Daniel 7 through 12. It'll mess you up. And then you'll be like, i got to come to church now. I'm terrified, right? So you can do that. Please study the Bible on your own. And I want to just offer to you a, a particular tool that helps me to study the Bible. So as you read commentaries and you read history, you have a couple of different options in terms of who this man Darius is. The first is Darius's literary fiction. In other words, Daniel, the author of Daniel, has created this person in order to prove a point he wasn't real he didn't really exist in history he's literary fiction for those of you guys who were here last week with the Belshazzar thing how'd that work out 
If you weren't here last week, essentially, we read about a man named Belshazzar and Daniel. And for 2,500 years, uh, scholars and historians thought there's no extra biblical data. This guy Belshazzar is a fiction. He was not real. Except now that things like the Nebuchadnezzar Chronicle and the Nabonidus Chronicle have been uncovered, there are thousands and thousands of references to this man Belshazzar in extra biblical sources, thus vindicating what the Bible's always been saying. And so those who said Belshazzar is a literary fiction, Belshazzar is a literary fiction, now that those documents have been uncovered, those documents have been, uh, you know, put forward to those who made that argument, and they're like, oh, Belshazzar wasn't a literary fiction. <laughs> Not just created by the Bible, real guy. So I don't think that concluding that Darius is a literary fiction is, is responsible scholarship. Does that make sense to you? I don't think that's fair based, and I think, I think it would embarrass those who, who conclude that he's literary fiction because we just saw what happened with Belshazzar. That doesn't seem like a smart position. Number two, that Darius himself could actually be Cyrus. So Cyrus the Great was the one who oversaw the Medo-Persian Empire. He was uh, more amenable to the plight of the Jews, to the plight of the Hebrew people. And so he's like, yeah, you've been in exile for 70 years. Why don't you go back and rebuild the temple that's been destroyed, rebuild the wall? that's been destroyed, that's Cyrus the Great. And so there are those who have concluded that Darius and Cyrus the Great are synonymous. I would suggest to you that that's not a biblically defensible or tenable position. Here's why. Last verse in Daniel chapter 6. Watch. This Daniel prospered under the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Doesn't it seem to distinguish those two people there? I mean, if they're, you know, a lot of times that happens in the Bible, that happens in the literature of antiquity. The same person is mentioned with different names. But in this particular case, since they show up in the same verse, Darius and Cyrus as being synonymous doesn't seem like a tenable position to me. This next one sounds like a more tenable position, that Darius was actually a man named Gubaru. Somebody in the first service asked me to pronounce this like Subaru, so Gubaru. Um, so that Darius was, was this guy. So this guy, Gubaru, is mentioned in the Nabonidus Chronicle, mentioned in the Nebuchadnezzar Chronicle. And interestingly enough, uh, this word Darius is both a proper name, but it's also a title, like leader or king or lord or Caesar or something like that. And so what scholars have concluded is that Darius is this guy, but, but it's really referring to a king or leader or lord. That's a possibility. Here is what I would suggest to you makes the most sense to me, is that Darius is TRD. That's the real deal. That's the real deal. He's the real deal. Here's why. Just because we have no extra biblical data to support the record of Scripture does not mean it's false. That's, that's irresponsible and intellectually dishonest to simply conclude that, especially since we saw with Belshazzar last week, well, nobody's ever mentioned him in the scripture, so he must not be, nobody's ever mentioned him outside of the scripture, therefore he must not be a real guy. Well, that's, that's, kind, of a, that's kind of a ludicrous conclusion, in my opinion. Now, the, the idea or the notion that he's the real deal or that he's guru <laughs> or that he is synonymous with Cyrus, those fall within the realm of orthodoxy and responsibility biblical scholarship. I don't feel that concluding that he's a literary fiction falls within the realm of responsible biblical scholarship, but those three options, him being the real deal, is the one that makes the most sense to me. 
And here's the deal, and I'm going to come over here away from the Bible so, so that I can just communicate to you something that even is on my heart. I am comfortable with saying these words as I study the scripture. Hear the words, ready? Hear the words. We don't know yet. We don't know yet. And as we dig and excavate and more stuff comes to light, etc., and then eventually when Jesus comes back, then we will know for sure. And that's happened over and over and over. I can't name all the examples. I don't have time. It's happened over and over and over. So uh, just as a gift to you, just to say it's okay to read the Bible and say, how can it be this and this? How can it be this and this? How can he be both entering Jericho and leaving Jericho at the same time? That doesn't make sense. Just go, we don't know yet. Uh, the reason he could be entering and leaving Jericho at the same time is that cities back then weren't just like a city like this. There were a bunch of little cities like this. So there are five, six in succession all referred to as Jericho. So technically, you can be both leaving and entering Jericho at the same time. So that's why Matthew and Mark's accounts look like they conflict. They don't because you could be doing both of those at the same time. You see how archaeology and things begin to reveal the truth of Scripture. I believe that that will be the case when it comes to Darius. That was just a little sidebar. This Darius, what he does is he appoints 120 satraps over the kingdom. These are provincial governors, is all they are, provincial governors, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them were three high officials of whom Daniel was one. All right, so there's our guy. That's the guy we've been studying. He's one of three vice presidents, essentially, in the kingdom to whom these satraps should give account so that the king may suffer no loss. Then this Daniel, watch this, became above, uh, distinguished above all the other high officials and the satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So He's on equal footing when it comes to rank with these other vice presidents, prime ministers, whatever you want to say, in the kingdom. But in terms of influence that he's earned, he surpasses them. He kind of has the king's ear a little bit more. In fact, the king has planned to give him the whole kingdom. You saw it right there. And so what happens is the high officials in the satraps who have the same rank as he does sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. What's happening here? What, what emotion are they feeling? They're jealous, that's right. They're jealous, that's exactly what they're, they're jealous, and so they want to set a trap for Daniel. Sidebar, real quickly, just a little quick equation. This is what is happening here, and it's a little quick equation that you might want to apply in your life, that proximity plus similarity minus character always equals jealousy. If you're near to somebody physically or even digitally, you know, you follow them, they follow you, and all that stuff. It's like a Petri dish for jealousy, the Instagram. So... Proximity, then similarity. Okay, I'm not jealous of LeBron James. Why? Because I am similar to him in absolutely no way. Other than the fact we both have ears, I think. You know, like that's it. So I don't struggle with jealousy. But when you're near to somebody and you're similar in rank, you're similar in skill set, and you don't have a character to stand on, you're going to become jealous. And this is exactly what happens with these other provincial rulers in the kingdom. There, here's the side note. Watch yourself on the jealousy thing. You got to build your character because these two things you can't control, friends. You can't always control who you're near to, right? Hey, you're working on this project with this person at work. You can't say, no, you got to be near to them. And they might be of a similar rank or a similar skill set as you. And if you don't have characters to support it, you're going to get eaten alive by jealousy. And that's what's happening with these guys. And so what they do, next slide, is they seek uh, to find a gr ground for complaint against Daniel, but they couldn't find a ground for complaint or any fault because he was, say that word with me, 
faithful, right? So they can't do anything, and no error or fault was found in him. So here's what they do. They go to the king, Darius, and they say, hey, uh, we suggest that you pass an edict. And, and not, it's not just a suggestion. In fact, all of the wise men, all of your supervisors, all of your presidents, we've all agreed that this is a good idea. Is that true or false? False. They haven't consulted Daniel. And Daniel was the executive vice president in the kingdom and surpassed them in terms of influence. But they didn't bring him in and they didn't consult him. And here's the edict. You pass the edict that says no one can pray to any God except you for the next 30 days. And the king says, that sounds like a good idea. So he passes the edict. And when Daniel, uh, next slide, knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Hmm. Does he listen to the king's edict? No. And the consequence here, by the way, is that anybody who violates the king's edict is thrown into the den of lions. And this is not like a den of lions, like Daniel's down there with a whip and a chair, you know, and the lions are like juggling, you know, and you know, playing with hoops and stuff like that. They're going to tear him limb from limb. We know this actually from other places in history that there were dens or pits where they would keep animals like this. In fact, if you ever visited the Roman Colosseum, you would see something similar to this. Pits dug into the ground where they would keep dangerous animals and they would throw victims into them. This is happening in Babylon uh, in the Medo-Persian Empire 600 years before Rome. So what happened is these men now come uh, by agreement and found Daniel making petition and a plea before his God. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but in the verse before, it tells us that Daniel is in his upper chamber. So he's actually elevated, and he's by his window in his house. Now, I grew up in church, and, you know, there was kind of this deal that, like, you know, this notion that Daniel opened his windows wide, and he went out to the windows, and he went, Dear God, you know. That's actually not the case. In fact, this was his private residence. Not only was it his private residence, but he's in his upper chamber, so he's elevated above the city. So the only way that these men could catch him praying is if they entered his private residence without any uh, reason for doing so, or they climbed a ladder, or they got in a window that was opposite the window Daniel was praying in. They're, they're trying to trap him. Brandon Bernard, when he preached a few weeks ago, made this really great point about these Chaldeans being snitches. Here they are again. They're snitches. And so they come to the king and they go, we saw Daniel praying. And indeed they did. They saw Daniel praying and they said, look, you passed a law that said anybody who prays to a God other than you is going to be thrown into the den of lions. And the king's like, well, you know, maybe we could revise the edict. And the, and the guys say, look, according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, once that edict has been delivered, it's out of your hands. You know, you picture the, the, the wax, like in the old school stuff, like wax and the king like puts a stamp of, you know, approval on whatever the document is. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Back then, once that's done, even the king can't change it. So now the king is in a pickle. His highest ranking official, his most trusted advisor in the kingdom has violated this edict and he is obligated to throw him in the den of lions. So the king was much distressed by these words and he set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. But then these men came back to him and they said, next slide, oh, no, O king, it's a law of the Medes and Persians. No injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed, buddy, you can't change it, sorry. 
So the king, because he's painted himself into a corner now, commanded. And then Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords. What he's doing is he's sealing the den of lions so that nobody can mess with Daniel. Nobody can drug the lions. I mean, he's, he's with those lions. He's going to be spending all night with them, dead or alive. This is what's going to happen. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no diversions were brought before him. In other words, he didn't have any fun, and he didn't sleep at all either. So then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, right? His heart's breaking. This is a friend now. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Now, I wonder if Daniel's sense of humor was anything like mine. And by that I mean warped. Mm. So, spoiler alert, Daniel's still alive. But I wonder if, if when the king cried out, Daniel, has God been able to deliver you that Daniel just went, awkward silence, right? Or he went like this. Help me. Help me. See, I don't know if Daniel thought that was funny, but you certainly didn't. Um, It's fine. It's just my warped sense of humor, but Daniel doesn't do any of those things. He responds this way. He says, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was two things, found blameless before him, that's my God, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. So then the king was exceedingly glad, of course he was, and he commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den, so Daniel was taken up out of the den, no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. It's funny that the king didn't sleep at all, but Daniel, Daniel's waking up feeling like a million bucks. (sighs) These lions are soft, warm. This was fun. And the king commanded... And those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones to pieces. This is what was supposed to have happened to Daniel. I want to give you another Bible study tip this morning based on this verse. It's a little bit of a sidebar, but stick with me. Uh, You know how people say this all the time? Like, in the Old Testament, God is a God of violence. It's just a violent God. It's just killing people all the time. And sometimes... They would use a verse like this as a proof text. And what that means is, God's a God of violence. Look at Daniel 6.24. That will just tell you that God's a God of violence. Do you see here, and everybody stick with me. Do you see here that the author of Daniel is simply reporting facts to us? He's not saying... That, that, that the king took those people who maliciously accused him, threw them into the den of lions, and they were broken bones and all that stuff. And God had a little party in heaven for that. And God was glad for that. And God caused that. And God prompted the king to throw them in there. He's not saying any of that. All the author has said is, this happened. It's not a prescription. It's simply a description of the events. So let's be careful, my friends, when we begin to ascribe motives to God. Just a little, just a little tidbit. Everybody with me on that one? Does that make sense? Good. 
So then King Darius uh, wrote to all the people, the nations and language that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree. Here's my decree number two, that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the God, living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of King Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. How many of you heard that story before? Yeah, how many of you have never heard that story before? Cool, cool, very cool. That's awesome, that's awesome. Uh, I have heard that story before. Growing up uh, in Sunday school, and, and I went to church in, in, in West Texas uh, when I was a kid, and uh, what we had in Sunday school were these things called, Sunday school is what we used to call kids' ministry. It's the thing that our kids do now that's really fun and amazing, and they want to stay for two services. Back then, it was like, oh my gosh, this is, we're having to do this again. This is unbelievable. Uh, what a chore. Uh, but now, it's very, very different. But back then, we had these things called felt boards. You remember felt boards? You know what a felt board is? Some of you are nodding. Some of you are having like a, like a reaction to that. Like, you know, like I remember felt boards. They were painful. Okay, a felt board was like a little stand-up thing, and it was made of felt, and we had all these little characters, and we could put them up on there and like this is Jesus this is the tomb this is the man being lowered down to Jesus and this is Abraham or whatever and this is Daniel and we would do this story over and over Daniel in the lion's den and the, the lions never had any teeth on the felt board they were always smiling they're like cartoon you know cartoon lions they're just happy to have Daniel there oh look everyone it's Daniel and and it's very odd and one of the things even that we used to um see in a lot of those images growing up. And you would see this now too. If you Google Daniel in the lion's den and you clicked images, you would see images depicting Daniel as a teen. As a teen. But listen close. When Daniel was exiled from Jerusalem to the city of Babylon, he was in his early teens, probably about 13 or 14. But now he's endured the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, Nabonidus, Belshazzar, now he sits under a brand new kingdom of the Medes and the Persians and a brand new king. And in fact, from history and from the documents of scripture and extra biblical documents, what we know is that about 70 years have passed from the time that Daniel was exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon and this moment when he's in the lion's den. Let me say that one more time. How many years have passed? 70. So Daniel was 85-ish when he was thrown into the lion's den. Now, that makes it feel a little different, doesn't it? It's like most 85-year-olds don't like survive the fall, you know, much less the lions themselves. Tremper Longman is one of my favorite uh, commentators on Scripture, and he writes this about the Bible. He says, The historical narrative of the Old Testament was written not simply for remembrance, but also to serve as a paradigm for future behavior. Not just to have something we could read and go remember when this happened, but it also sets us up and helps shape our behavior. And it's not a prescription for behavior. We don't read Daniel 6 and go, every time I pray, I need to do so in front of an open window, preferably upstairs. Like, that's not the right conclusion there. But what we can do is look at Daniel's life and say, I want to adopt some of his character traits and qualities because it's meant as a paradigm for future behavior. So the fact that Daniel is 85, he's faithful to God, and God delivers him from the lions. Here, here is my one point that, that I want to make this morning is that Daniel finished well. Daniel finished well. This is the end of his life, friends. This is the last time we'll talk about Daniel. 
other than his book, but Daniel as a person. This is the last story the Bible records. Daniel finished well. And the reality is that many great men don't finish well. I don't need to go through names. Some of you know, and can, you know, whether it's in the news or even personally, people that live the life of faith and they begin to abdicate at the end of their life. They begin to stray away from orthodoxy. They begin to stray away from their character. They don't finish well, but Daniel did. And so what I want to share with you this morning is just five secrets for finishing well. Five secrets for finishing well. And I'm talking to a group of people in the room that maybe have less life in front of them than they have behind them. Now, some of you might be thinking, Luke, you're 40. You know, the national averages say you have the exact same amount of life in front of you and before you. What do you know about finishing well? Here's the secret, ready? Nothing, nothing. But you know who does know something? Daniel. Daniel finished well. And men and women of God, whether you are 17 or 70, whether you are 9 or 90, we need you to finish well. Seniors, especially in our church right now, I just want to call on you and say you are loved and cared for. And at the same time, we need you to serve, to sacrifice, to lead, to disciple. We need your grace. We need your patience. We need you, listen close, to finish well. We need you to not grow weary in doing good. But know that in due time, you'll reap a harvest of righteousness, those who continue. We need you to continue what you have been doing, even to build this church. For those of you who don't know, about 40 years ago, almost 45 now, a bunch of people mortgaged their homes, took out a second mortgage on their home to build this place, taking huge faith-based risks, amazing people of God on whom uh, this church is built. We need you to continue and finish well. Don't give up. Don't retire from spirit spiritual maturity, be like Daniel, who finished well. So I'm going to take five secrets from the life of Daniel on how to finish well. Here they are. One, you won't sprint at 70 unless you start at 17. You're not going to have these moments as an 85-year-old when something comes along that, you know, do you have to face it? Did Daniel have to face the den of the lions? No, he could have gotten out of it, probably in a number of ways, but he didn't. He didn't. He stood. He stood alone. He stood by his convictions. He stood by his life of prayer. And listen, men and women of God, that doesn't just happen out of nowhere. Let's recall where Daniel has come from. When he was 13, he was taken out of his home city of Jerusalem, taught a different language. Uh, uh, They were trying to teach him to worship different gods, a different culture. Everything he knew, he left, his family, his friends, his city, all that stuff, and was taken into another country. Over that time, he's endured transitions in the kingdom. He's raised up in the kingdom and become a chief of, you know, kind of the wise men in the kingdom. All the while, has stuck, stuck by God and allowed God to remain faithful to him and demonstrated faithfulness to God. Men and women, sprinting at 70 doesn't start at 69 and a half. We, you know, we do this all the time. I hear people do this all the time. You know, I'm going to get serious about my faith when I have kids. You know what? You are. Because when you have kids, you'll find yourself praying, oh, God, I really messed up, and I really need your help. Please, please, God, please. I don't want to mess them up. 
Or, or we say like, uh, you know, I'll get serious about my faith when I'm married. Or I'll get serious about giving when I have more income. I'll get serious about that stuff. See, that's not a biblical notion. Getting serious about your faith starts now. And unless you start now, 9-year-old, 12-year-old, 17-year-old, 30-year-old, you're not going to finish well. It begins now. It did with Daniel. And there are so many folks in the scripture that did not finish well. And a lot of times it's because they didn't start great either. But Daniel did. Young people in the room. I talked to seniors a minute ago. We need you just as badly. And not just to show up here and warm a seat. We need you to lead. We need you to serve. We need you to sacrifice. Not just Bayview Glen Church, but the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. You have a joyful opportunity to step into that now so that you finish well when you're 70. Number two, secret to finishing well. Your convictions only matter if your character counts. Your convictions only matter if your character counts. Uh, Daniel's conviction was that one God should be worshipped, and eventually that one God was worshipped as Darius issued a decree in the kingdom that everybody's going to worship Daniel's God. You remember that from part of the story. But let's rewind to the very first uh, couple of verses here, shall we? In verse 3, we're told that an excellent spirit was in Daniel, therefore the king planned to set a whole kingdom under him. Uh, and we're told that those who wanted to trap Daniel could find no ground or complaint or fault because he was faithful. In other words, he had demonstrated character that earned him the right to share his convictions. I'm going to say that one more time. There was demonstrated character that earned him the right to share his convictions. And in his later years, when he began to share his convictions... He got in places and in situations and in circumstances where people listened hard to his convictions. But you don't get an open door to share your convictions unless your character counts. There's somebody at our church um, who is finishing well right now. She's uh, in her 90s, so she's in extra innings, really. And she's not able to attend here on Sunday mornings because she's in a senior's facility. Her name is Nancy Keeping. And she's an absolutely outstanding human being who is finishing well for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that she started when she was a kid. She started walking faithfully with God. And Nancy's character gives her opportunity to do things that other people don't get the opportunity to do. Let me share with you one of them. Several years ago, when Nancy was still able to attend here on Sunday morning, I was walking out the front doors with my daughter, uh, who was like two and a half at the time. And Nancy, as we're walking out, looks at us. And when I say us, she did not make eye contact with me. She only made eye contact with Kaya. And Nancy said, chocolate for the baby. And reached in her pocket and pulled out and began to open a king-size Kit Kat bar. For a two-and-a-half-year-old. Without making eye contact with her father, much less asking for permission. And she gave the chocolate bar to Kaya. And what did I say? Nothing. She just gets away with that. As far as I'm concerned, Nancy can just park wherever she wants. Like, you want to park on the 404, park on the 404. Mary and Celsey, you're still driving at 90, whatever it is. You just park wherever you want. 
If, if it's most convenient to you to just park anywhere you want on the 401, please do that. We support that. Because your character, and I would say to Marion as well, and to Nancy Keeping, your character has earned you the right to do things that other people don't get the opportunity to do. Like give my kid a chocolate bar without any argument from me. You know what's weirder about this? Nancy doesn't even attend here anymore. And every couple, she doesn't attend here because she's not able to get here physically, right? And every two, three weeks, I'll have some Somebody walk up to me and start to open a Kit Kat bar and hand it to my kid and go, Nancy sent this. She just gets so much permission. And it's not just in those particular areas, like those funny things. But Nancy could say some hard things to me. Nancy could say some hard things to a lot of people around her. Marion could say some difficult things to people around her. And she wasn't, wouldn't hesitate. And we listen. Why? Because their character matters. See, this was Daniel. An excellent spirit was found in him. He was faithful and there was no fault found in him. That's why his convictions were heard because his character matters. Your convictions only matter if your character counts. Number three, finishing well is always proactive, not reactive. Finishing well is proactive, not reactive. I find sometimes, especially as we age, that we get reactive to kind of cultural trends. You know, we say things like, I don't like the rock music. I don't like the rap music. Apparently, we're all Southern, too, as well, because that's the accent I just, I don't know why. Stuff just comes out. And we begin to react to things that we see happening in culture. Thus, thus, now watch this. Watch this. Have you heard it said before? Christians are more known for what they're against than what they're for. That's because as we age, we get reactive rather than proactive. It's just something that happens. Not good, not bad. It just is. But we have to fight against that if we're going to follow the example of Daniel. Why? This was not a reactive man. This was a proactive man who just did what he always did. How do I know that? Because the king says twice, Daniel, uh, he's talking about the God whom you serve continually. The second time, uh, he's talking to Daniel when he's in the den of the lions. He says, Daniel, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? See, this was not a reactive thing for Daniel. This was a proactive thing for Daniel. Uh, the king didn't pass the edict. You know, Nobody can pray to anybody except me. And Daniel goes, I'll show you. I'm going to open my window and pray just like this. God! Like walking around, look, look, look what, it, look what the Bible says. Look, it says that when Daniel heard about the edict, next slide, when Daniel heard about the edict, he went and prayed and gave thanks to his God. Would you read these words with me, please? As he had done previously. See, finishing well is proactive, it's not reactive. Certainly, we're supposed to speak out to things in culture that we see that are wonky. Certainly, we're supposed to be pr prophetic. But let's be a group of people who are known for what they're for. We're known for our holy habits rather than the things that we just get after because they pop up in culture. Daniel was. That's what it means to finish well. Number four, finishing well means discipling others. Finishing well means discipling others. We can assume that Daniel, safely assume that Daniel was a disciple maker for a couple of reasons. 
And by disciple maker, I mean he mentored those who were maybe younger than him or looked to him and helped them grow in the likeness of God. couple reasons. One is because when those four youths who are brought from Jerusalem to Babylon are mentioned together, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Daniel's name is mentioned first. And back then when books were written, the first name in a series was the one who was most prominent. So Daniel was the most prominent among those four peers. The book itself is named after him. We have an extensive chronicle and history of his life. That means that Daniel was looked to in that context by those who were behind him in terms of faith. You know, they were just growing and learning and he was leading and discipling, finishing well means discipling others. Seniors, I will tell it to you one more time. We need you. I know that young people are scary. I know that they smell weird. I know, like junior hires, I've said this before, smell like Skittles and BO and Axe body spray. It's a weird, weird little combination of things. I know that TikTok and Instagram, and I, don't, I know, I know, I know that you live through a different world. There are people in this congregation that live through World War II. They, they live through the Cold War. They live through Vietnam. You know, they grew up and went to university and did well and learned stuff and didn't have the internet. <gasps> and so I know culturally you're very, very different. I know that. But we need you to bridge those gaps. Young people, you need to work hard too, friends. Because those folks in your life that are older than you have got some wisdom that's going to help you avoid pitfalls. But old, older folks, when I say old people, I don't mean that. Those who have less life in front of them than they do behind them. Finish well. Finish well by discipling us. See, this is how Paul finished well. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. What's he saying? I am almost going to die. But I can confidently say, Paul says, that I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. He's at the end of his life, he's confidently saying this, and where does this verse come from? A letter to a protege named Timothy. He's still discipling. He's still helping young people grow. He's still empowering. He's still loving and showing grace to those who have come behind him because finishing well means discipling others. That's the reality of it that we learn from Daniel and from Paul. Last one, I'll tell you, and then we'll conclude. Finishing well means taking faith-fueled risks. Taking faith-fueled risks. What I mean by a faith-fueled risk is not going, God is going to save me, therefore I'm going to lick every communion cup, you know, after the service, and I'll be just fine. That's, that's, that's a ridiculous risk. A faith-fueled risk is like the group of people that 43-plus years ago said, we're going to take out a second mortgage on our homes in order to fund this vision that we believe God has given, and you're sitting in that vision right now. That's a faith-fueled risk. See, Daniel, knowing that the edict had been passed... He knew the document had been signed. He still went and prayed anyway as he has previously done. I, if I was 85, I, I could imagine all the excuses I could come up with, all the reasons, all the compromise, all the, okay, dear God, I've served you faithfully for 85 years. I'm going to take a pass on this one because I don't want to be eaten alive by lions. But no. It's another risk for Daniel. Because finishing well means taking faith-fueled risks and trusting God for the big stuff. 
I'll conclude with this because I think it's a helpful illustration and helpful encouragement. But there was a man named Eric Little, whom you may or may not have heard of. In fact, um, Eric Little was memorialized in a movie called Chariots of Fire. You remember that? That's Eric Little. He was a sprinter, Scottish man in the 1920s, and actually won a gold medal in the 400 meters in 1924, I believe, in Paris. Now, Eric Little could have won the 100 meters as well. He'd have been just fine. Everybody knew he was faster than everybody else. But Eric Little was not available to compete in the qualifying races because the qualifying races took place on Sunday. And Eric Little was a Christian, and since Sunday is the Lord's Day, I don't run on those days. Uh, Not only that, Eric Little was preaching that day, so, you know, they'd had to go without a preacher. So Eric Little didn't qualify for the 100 meters, but he did qualify for the 400 meters. And Eric Little's running style was very, very interesting. In fact, he was publicly mocked for it because he was very unorthodox and very haphazard. I don't know, Friends? People watch Friends? You watch Friends? Remember the TV show Friends? And the way Phoebe ran and Friends just like this, like that's how Eric Little ran, like head back and like all his competitors would make fun of him and they would say stuff like he's running around like a chicken with his head cut off, but he's winning. Like we're confused. So somebody asked Eric Little one time, what's your strategy for the 400 meters? Like how are you winning? This is Eric Little's response. He said, the secret to my success in the 400 meters is that I run the first 200 meters as fast as I can And with God's help for the second 200 meters, I run harder. (laughs) If you know anything about middle distance or the 400 meters anyway in track, that you can't just go out and sprint or 200 meters in, you'll collapse on the track and everybody will pass you. You have to reserve your energy. Not Eric Little. For the first 200 meters, I run hard. For the second 200 meters, with God's help, I run harder. Folks, finishing well means running harder. It doesn't mean doing more things to please God. God is already pleased with you if you are in Christ. It doesn't mean earning anybody's favor. It doesn't mean impressing the pastor. God knows it does not mean that. But it means faithfully discipling those younger than you. It means taking faith-fueled risks. It means taking a cue from Daniel and saying, As I reach my 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, some in this room are even in triple digits. That I'm going to continue to serve, continue to love God, and continue to move the kingdom forward. Let's finish well. Let's pray. Thank you for your goodness, O God, and your faithfulness in this place. I pray for the seniors even in this room that they would know that they are extraordinarily valuable in this place and they are loved and cared for and listened to. I pray, God, that you would bridge the gap between generations in our church. Sometimes there is a gap and we're not always sure how to connect, not always sure how to disciple. God, only you can do that healing work. Only you can help us see the similarities, rather the differences in one another. Pray, O oh God, that we would be a church full of people who are committed to finishing well. And God, only you know the number of our days. So finishing well might mean today, might mean 90 years from now. God, no matter what it is, we want to be a people who finishes well. Let us take a cue from Daniel and make a commitment today that we're going to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.